First Peter 5, let's begin in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. See, that's why we had you stay in here, youth. <laughs> it's actually true for many reasons. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Ooh, that hits us all, doesn't it? And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by, G- by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, s- strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preeminence of it, Lord, and thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. You've given it such a great place in our lives, Lord, and we know, Lord, that you want to use these verses for your purposes for us this morning, collectively, as a body, as a family, but also individually. And we're so thankful that your Holy Spirit is so capable of doing that so uh, potently and proficiently. So we yield our hearts to you, Lord. We want to be taught by your Spirit. We yield our hearts to him to be our teacher this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We pray, Lord, that we would be um, wanting to bless your heart by our obedience to your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to finish a book. Uh, It's a sense of accomplishment. It's a sense of, you know, completion or finality or uh, just that we, we made it through something that uh, so many people don't ever get a chance to look at because it's a privilege to gaze into God's word. But as we've gone through First Peter, we've seen two major themes, and we'll continue th- those themes in Second Peter uh, a little bit, but those themes are eternity and practical holiness. And we've seen those two themes be spoken about many different ways as we've gone through this book verse by verse. And so we've seen him try to get their attention on eternity because they're, again, suffering. They've been engaged in great persecution. Their persecution is really ramped up at this time as we've talked about, and they're suffering. And so Peter, by the Spirit, has been very just appropriate with how he's laid out all these great themes of practical holiness and getting their eyes off of their immediate circumstances to see the bigger picture and help them to see that what they're going through at the moment isn't, isn't going to define their, their, their whole Christian walk, that God is going to bring them to an end, that all of this leads somewhere, and that God hasn't forgotten them, and God hasn't uh, met, made a mistake, or he's not suddenly off the throne. You ever wake up some mornings and feel like, 
You know, I'm wondering if you're on the throne today because, you know, of what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. He never is off the throne. He's always on that throne, always available for us as that great high priest for us. And so we've seen him go into great detail about how we should live our lives. And again, as I've mentioned before, you kind of think that maybe because they're going through difficulty that maybe he might lower the bar related to practical holiness. But he keeps that bar where it needs to be. Because as we know, when we go through trials, as we go through difficulty, one of the first things that can go is our desire or our willingness to be obedient to his word. And that's the time that, that really, it really makes a difference, or at least we sense that it makes a difference. It always makes a difference, obedience to him. But when we're going through trials, part of the protection mechanism that he's placed in our lives is personal holiness, and it, and it is uh, its own reward. So he's been talking about how we should function in marriage, how we should function in a relationship between uh, you know, he talks about master and slave because he's speaking to that situation. But for our purposes, it would be employer-employee and submitting to one another. And, and also letting our good works be so pervasive coming through our lives that people have no way to slander us. That they're, that they're brought to shame in the sense of how they're accusing us of things and saying that we're weird or saying that we're, you know, uh, Jesus freaks. And, you know, the word Christian actually didn't began as a real good term. It wasn't a compliment. You know, it was a, it was a derogatory uh, expression by persecutors or those that were skeptics of Christianity. And so because of that, he says, just live that life that, that will bring them uh, or will shut their mouths related to their slander because they won't be able to argue with your life. You know, our lives are the best witness, uh, the most pervasive witness that we can demonstrate is living a different kind of life. We can talk, and we should talk, and we should preach the gospel, but there are times where our walk really takes people over the edge, so to speak, related to uh, that they're, they're thinking that we are the legitimate real deal. And, and so he continues, he continues along those lines this week with personal holiness. But before that, we saw last week about elders and how these persecuted uh, believers also, of course, had spiritual leaders. And he told them, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, he told them to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. And, and, and he said to not do it out of compulsion, but do it willingly, to have the right motives. And, and, and I really believe, and we looked at it a little bit last week, that when you're being persecuted as a leader, of course, you're a big target. And so a lot of way, times in our day, we have ways to be able to uh, minister kind of behind the scenes with technology, but they didn't have that. So they had to come out in the open to minister and to serve people, which made them, uh, you know, a target. So he had to exhort them, you need to shepherd these people, regardless of the risk that you take by doing so. Your calling is your calling, regardless of the circumstances that you have to go through. And so he encouraged them. But now, uh, this week, he goes even further into being a servant. Because he talked about the elders should be servants, and the leaders should be servants, and so forth. But now he's going to talk about everybody. And he begins there in verse 5. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And I believe he's talking about the elders that are in their lives, not just in this church, but also in, their, in, in every uh, uh, 
place that they find themselves in life, their parents, their, their just older people in general that God's placed in their lives. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's very important. So, young people, I wanted you in here today. I wanted you to hear that God says, by his word, you see it right there in verse 5, he says, submit yourselves to your elders. So why would that be important? It would be important because God has placed your elders or those that are adults in your life as a protection for you, as a, as a means by which you could be guided in life. And I, we've all been young before. <laughs> you know, we know what it's like to think that we know everything. And I'm not saying every one of you young people think you know everything. Okay, don't get me wrong. But sometimes we think we know more than we do. And it's true for even adults. We admit that. So God says to you to submit yourselves to your elders. But he adds to it, he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Why would he have to tell us that? Because our tendency is probably not to be submissive to one another. We'll be submissive to some people that we enjoy being submitted to. But there are some people that we don't want to submit to because we have pride. And that's what he's going to get to here. And one of the evidences that you're humble is that you can submit to any authority that God has placed in your life. That's an evidence of humility. So he says all of us are called to be submissive to one another. And when you're going through difficulty, when, you're, when your culture is going, you know, as, as believers, if you're going through persecution, you're going through difficulty, you have needs. And, and a lot of times those needs aren't met when we're not willing to be submissive to what other people need and, and be put, looking at their needs above our own Needs And so the context kind of really fills this out and, and, and illuminates it. Because, because when you're going through difficulty and hardship, it's very easy to put yourself first. That's what he just got done speaking to the elders about. They were going to be putting themselves first instead of the flock and, and, and not doing what God's called them to do in their calling. And so he has to tell them to shepherd them even though it's difficult. Well, it's the same here with everybody else going through persecution. We have to be willing to submit to one another and be, care, and be caring for one another. And notice he says in the middle of verse 5, to be clothed with humility. This is really interesting. He uses the word that they would use to, that a slave would use as an apron uh, to, to do the work that they were supposed to do. And it's actually the same word in John 13 when we see the Lord Jesus wash the disciples' feet. When he put aside his outer garment there. And that's the, the best picture of of. of you know, serving in a practical sense is the Lord Jesus there washing his uh, disciples' feet. And of course, as I, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago or so, but Peter, of course, was there. Peter's writing the book. He remembers what he said, and I bet he would like to just erase that. You ever want to erase things (laughs) that uh, are in the record, so to speak, about our failures? It's really easy to, 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 to just want to erase our failures, but but, and they are a race in God's eyes, but in terms of what other people know about, we want people to have amnesia related to our failures. But Peter said, you can't wash my feet. You can wash everybody else's feet. You're not washing my feet. And the Lord Jesus said, well, you have no part with me then. Well, then give me a bath. You know, wash my, my whole body. You know, it's like, of course, Peter, Mr. Extreme there. Now look at how God has changed his heart. He was one of the disciples that was com- trying to be the greatest, Right? They were fighting and disputing who's the greatest. And here he says, be clothed with humility here. Have it be something that is like a garment that you wear. 
to have humil- be known for someone that's humble. You know, someone that's humble doesn't talk down about themselves all the time. A person that's humble just doesn't talk about themselves. Because sometimes when you talk how bad you are, or how low you are, you're putting attention on yourself. And sometimes we can be really proud about how humble we are. That's how crazy we are. We can be prideful. I mean, you know, no one's as humble as I. Have you seen many people more humble than me? Have you noticed that? You know, that could be us. But, but a humble person doesn't even talk about themselves. They're not even in the picture, so to speak. So he says we need to be clothed with humility. You can't be submissive to one another if you're prideful. Because pride means to see yourself above. And you're thinking that I don't need to do that. I don't need to submit to them. But we all need to be submissive to one another. And then he gives us a biblical basis for it from the Old Testament. These were all Jews in terms of their background. And so he says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, the word resist is an interesting word. It's a word that you would use to describe someone that was arrayed for battle against you. <laughs> that's, not what, that's not the posture you want God to be in related to your life, is, is arrayed you know, in, in against you in terms of what you're about because of your pride. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, lest we think that you can earn grace, because you can't earn grace, you can't earn, by being humble, you can't earn God's grace. That's not what he's saying. But if you're humble, you put, you put your, yourself in a place where you can receive his grace to a greater extent. And, and that's what's required in order to be able to submit to one another and to care for other people's needs. To have that type of humility, you have to have grace being applied from God to your life so that you can be a greater blessing to others. Grace is getting something that you good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve that's good. And God wants to pour out grace on his children. And notice in verse 6, Peter tells us how, uh, how, how we are to be humble or how we get humility. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So he connects verse 6 with verse 5 by the word therefore. And he tells us to humble ourselves. And really, you don't see it on the surface, but it's really in the passive tense there. He's saying to let somebody else humble you. Let God humble you. That's why he says, under the mighty hand of God. Because how do I humble myself? Do I just say a bunch of times, I'm humble, I'm humble, I'm humble. You just say it enough and or there's a certain ritual that you go through. How do you become humble? We know that we need it, but how do we do it? How do we accomplish it? Well, you can't accomplish it yourself. God has to humble you. He produces that heart. He, you know, he produces all the spiritual fruit through our lives, and he uses also circumstances. He uses circumstances to produce humility in our life. You ever been in a situation where you get completely humbled and it was, you didn't want it, but it happened. And then, you know, you were later, you were either, either thankful or not thankful, but you know that it happened one time. And that this is really embarrassing. Okay. I have to share with you the most embarrassing moment I ever had that produced a lot of humility in me. I was breakdancing uh, back in uh, <laughs> 1985. And I was at a roller rink where that's all we did if, on that one night of the week is breakdance. And I was in a crew. And we used to break dance against each other. And I, did, I wanted to do this move that no one else had ever done on a rink before. And there's a reason why. 
Um, it's very dangerous. It's where you kind of flip yourself on your back. You know, you kick your leg up and you flop on flat on your back. And we did that on the grass. And it was called the suicide move. <laughs> and uh, so I was losing to this guy. He was beating me. His moves were greater than mine. I couldn't match him. So I thought, I'm going to do a suicide and no one has ever done a suicide on this rink. And when I pull that off, I'm going to win. So I did it, and I landed on the back of my neck, and then the, my upper back, and then my hips, and I was just like, you know. And I was temporarily paralyzed. I could not move my legs, seriously, and that scared me. And everyone was laughing at me, and no one would help me. So I had to drag myself off of the rink by my arms, with my legs dragging behind me, with everybody laughing. It was the most humiliating thing. But I tell you what, I never, ever tried that move again. And I never, ever tried to win at all costs related to doing some kind of fancy move there. But there are many other more uh, redeemed ways of uh, having humility produced in our lives than obviously that. But notice he says that it happens under the mighty hand of God. It's not by accident he says mighty there. It requires his power to humble us in a way that he would have us be humbled. And so he says, I need to do that in a way that it, where it's done properly and it requires my power. It requires a lot of wisdom and power for God to humble us in the way that he'd want us to be humble. And, and, and so he has all the resources to be able to do that. But we may question his motivation for doing it. We may question why he would allow us to be humbled the way that he wants to humble us. And, and he wants us to know that his motivation is good. Look at the, the verse 6 there again. He says that he may exalt you in due time. His only motivation for humbling us and to keeping us where he wants us to be in our places in life and our ministries and wherever it is we find ourselves is because he wants to bless us. He wants to bless us by promoting us. That's what he kind of means by the word exalt there. He wants to promote us in a way that he wants to do it. And so what, what does that look like? What does it mean to be, you know, receive that kind of promotion? Well, it, it means for him to put us in the places in life that he de- desires for us because he knows what we can handle. There are two things we need to remember related to him exalting us or promoting us and him doing it under his mighty power. First of all, there is a timing. Notice he says, in due time. There's a timetable. You know, I, was, I received the calling to be a pastor in 1991 when I was, you know, 21 or 22 there. It wasn't, wouldn't be 12 years till I would be an assistant pastor. There was a lot that the Lord had to do and is still doing in my life for me to, to be usable in that way. And so it's in his timing, but it could be something completely different. It could be something, a ministry that you sense a calling to, or a place in life, or a career, or it could be so many different things that you are, you know, are tempted maybe to make it happen, to make something happen. And, and that's the worst thing that we could possibly do, is try to make something happen and, and related to where our place is in life. But the second thing is that he gets to, to decide what that looks like, how high will be exalted. We want to define that. We want to be doing, we want to be the president of the United States, or we want to be a CEO of, of a company, or we want, whatever it is, they're, they're, he's in charge of that. He's in charge of where he places us, and he knows what we can handle. 
Many of us couldn't handle certain positions or certain places in life or in ministry or or wherever it is that we're wanting to be placed. He knows what we can handle, when we can handle it. And he's not going to ruin us by placing us in those places prematurely or at all necessarily if if it's going to harm us. And, And so we have to understand that. We have to be content with that it's it's nothing but a a motivation and a heart of love from him that allows us to be promoted to wherever he calls us to be promoted and and so we need to, to to realize that and understand that because when we take matters in our own hands whatever it is when we're engaged in selfish ambition and we try to exalt ourselves through self-promotion or other means then God will humble us Because he loves us too much to be in a place that he hasn't called us. And so he will humble us in a way that um, will get the job done. (laughs) You know, that will will get us to the place that we're supposed to be. And we have to allow him to humble us uh, in the way that he wants us to be humbled. And then when when the context of him talking about submitting to one another and our elders and, you know, and submitting to God's authority that, that he's placed in our lives... It's comforting to trust, and again, like I mentioned earlier with Pastor Saeed, that God's sovereignty is the thing that's governing where he places us, and he has nothing but good intentions for us, and he knows what we can handle, and he knows what's best for us. It's been said that the way up is down, and the way down is up, you know, and and so that's true. We, We need to humble ourselves, allow him to humble us through his spirit, through his calling, by his word, so many different ways. Allow him to place us where he's called us to be. And then we will be exalted or promoted to the, to the place that he's called us in the way that he's wanting us to get there and in the timing that he has. And all those things are important to him. And so that, that helps us to trust him related to uh, where we end up. And, and so that, that, I hope, is an encouragement to us this morning. Now he says in verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Just think of, for a moment, they're dealing with incredible persecution. Think about the cares that these people could have. They're, being, they're losing their jobs, they're being run out of cities, they're, they're being put out of their churches, and they're losing the places where they worship. I mean, they're, they're suffering so substantively, and it's easy to forget that God says, all your care, even the kind of care that would be the, the kind that they would be offering up, the, what we would consider extreme circumstances, it's proficient for them. And that's what he says there, casting all, not some, all your care upon him. They, it's so easy to put our needs first when we're suffering and to put ourselves first. And we want to you know, take care of our own situation and we want to put ourselves in places of, of influence to help our situation because of what we're going through. And he says, don't, don't hold your cares on your own shoulders and try to make things happen in the power of your own strength. Cast your care upon him because he's able to carry it. You know, we can't carry everybody's burdens. But I don't mean as a church or leaders. I'm talking about as Christians. We can't carry our own burdens. We can't carry all of other people's burdens. But one thing that brings us so much joy is that he can. He can carry all of your burdens today. Maybe you're burdened down today, and we don't know any idea what you're going through, but you know what you're going through. And, and I want to encourage you today, cast your care upon him. He can take it. His shoulders are, can take all of what you can cast over 
to him. And he gives us the motivation, notice at the end of verse 7, for he cares for you. It's so easy to forget that. And I just love just having this verse wash over our hearts in a fresh way. He cares for you. We talked about last week about he loves his sheep and he cares about how they're treated. And we read out of Ezekiel how what he said about the false shepherds in Israel that were feeding upon the sheep. We talked about either you're feeding the sheep or you're feeding on the sheep, one of the two. And, and he cares for us. We're his sheep. And he wants us to have all of our needs met. But, he, but sometimes when we think what our needs are, he's thinking of a bigger picture. He's thinking of something far greater than what we're thinking. Just like with our children, you know, if you have children and you're disciplining them, you're allowing them to go through hard situations. At the time, all they can focus on is their immediate thing that they're going through. They don't see the bigger picture. They don't see the end that you have in mind for them and how someday they're going to get to that place and they're going to look back and be thankful that you stood strong and helped them uh, be developed and discipled. And it's just a, a smaller portrait or snapshot of how God deals with us in our walk. He cares for us. He, he wants us to cast our cares upon him. And he's bringing us to a place that's far greater than what we imagine. So I want to encourage you today, if you're overwhelmed and burdened today, it's easy to, to cast some of our care upon him some of the time. But he says, cast all your care upon me all of the time. Go to God first and, and cast those cares upon him. And he loves to take them. So he says, in verses 8 and 9, that there's spiritual warfare, though. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, the devil doesn't play fair, does he? He doesn't say, oh, look at how you're suffering. I'm going to have compassion on you because you're going through so much hardship right now. I'm going to leave you alone and give you a little reprieve. He doesn't do that. He just piles on. We're down. We're suffering. He just takes advantage of that. And and he just piles on. And so Peter says, don't forget now. You need to cast your cares upon God. But remember, you need to be sober about all of what's going on. Because you do have an adversary. You do have an enemy. And he says to think clearly. Notice the beginning of verse 8. Be sober. Think clearly. Have sobriety. Don't have anything influencing you apart from him. That's going to shake how you view your situation. Because when you're going through difficulty, when you're going through hardship, you need to be thinking clearly. And so often we can allow things to cloud our minds and cloud our judgment, whether they, whatever it may be. And he says, be vigilant, be consistent, go after, go after the Lord. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Now the word adversary there is actually the term they'd use to describe a legal... Uh, like a prosecuting attorney, you know, someone in court that's your adversary, your legal adversary there. And it's, it's true that he's the accuser of the brethren, the enemy is. So he accuses us before the Lord and he hurls, you know, accusations, some of which are true accusations. Uh, he knows that God knows everything. so He's not going to lie to the Lord. He knows the truth. So most of these things that he's saying are true failures that we've experienced, true things that he, that, he, that he can say to God. Obviously, God has the answer with allowing Jesus to take the punishment already for what we deserve. So uh, that's, our, that's our joy and our blessing to know. 
But he says, the devil walks about like a roaring lion. And this is communicating a great threat. I mean, when you're a, a lion, not that I'm speaking personal experience, you know, but if you're a lion, you know, and you're hungry, you're just waiting to pounce on something. That's the word picture here. That's the portrait he's painting. And we can put our guard down. And Paul said, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. We need to know his tactics. We need to know how he works. He works through condemnation. He works through bringing up our past, the things that God's already forgiven us of, who doesn't even think about. And we can, we re, there's so many different ways. And as you walk with the Lord and as you go further in maturity and, and experiencing what it means to walk in him, you start seeing how en- the enemy works uniquely in your own life, the things he likes to bring up, the buttons he likes to push. And he's saying you need to think clearly because you have someone that really wants to devour you and is there to to hurt you and to cause havoc. And so the enemy will kick us when, when we're down, but we need, to, um, we need to resist him. That's what he says in verse 9. Resist him. Now James talked about this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You remember in the, Lord, the Lord Jesus, how he handled temptation? He quoted scripture. He answered with the word of God. That's why it's so important to know the word of God, to be able to quote it. You don't always have the Bible around. You need to hide his word in our, in our hearts, in your heart, in my heart, so that we won't sin against him. So we can resist the enemy and we can quote scripture and we can, you know, not that you're having conversations with the enemy. I'm not wanting to say that. But I mean, we need to stand on God's word. But the real way that he says that we should resist him is the rest of verse 9. He says, steadfast in the faith. That's the key. And how, how are we are supposed to walk steadfastly in the faith? How do I do that? How do I not do it? Maybe we should start there. <laughs> we, we don't walk steadfast in the faith when we start going away from cultivating that relationship with God. And, you know, you, you, when you are a new believer, sometimes when you fall, when you sin, it's very easy to fixate upon that too much you've asked forgiveness and all of those things but you're still thinking that that is you know that that you're being punished for it or or that you're somehow different than everybody else and and then you stop going towards the Lord and as it's been said we need to fall towards the Lord instead of falling away from him because grace is and he's going to get to that grace is what is gives us the foundation for growth is our understanding of the grace of God and how he deals with us on the basis of grace. So we need to be steadfast in the faith. So when we're feeling attacked, we're sensing that attack, we need to continue to do what we've always done related to our walk. Continue to have our devotions every day. Continue to ask for prayer. Continue in fellowship. One of the worst things that you can do is separate yourself from fellowship when you're struggling and you're going through difficulty. And that's sometimes people's first resort unfortunately but when you do that you're just you're just making it worse you're just continuing the downward spiral that can happen because you're not going to God and going to you know being around his people the very people he's placed in your life to help you to to grow and be encouraged and get prayer and get in all these things and get proper perspective so if we could just know that when we struggle and we're dealing with spiritual warfare to go closer to the, to, to draw closer to the Lord when that happens, then 
we'll see how powerful that is and how God has set it up that way for us to overcome by getting strength from him because we're going closer to him and we're walking consistently with him. Then he continues, very important the rest of this, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice the word same. One of the things that the enemy does is that he makes us think that we're different than the rest of the body of Christ. That somehow we have it worse or somehow we're worse just in our own, intrinsically in ourselves. That we are worse than the rest of the body of Christ. And that's one of the ways, the tactics of the enemy to get us separated away from the body of Christ. You're worse. If they only knew what you did. If they only knew how you did it. If they only knew how many times that you've done it you know, recently, then they wouldn't love you how they say they love you. They wouldn't be gracious with you how they say they're being gracious with you. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. But these sufferings and you know, no temptation that's been given to us is, is except that which is common to man. So we're not experiencing any temptations or trials that anyone else isn't, is experiencing around the world. We prayed for Pastor Saeed. He's our brother. He's in another part, another part of the world right now, suffering. We need to pray for him like as we're praying for him. But we need to recognize that there's other believers in this world that are going through similar things. And so when we're going through difficulty, when we're going through trials, when we're struggling, we need to recognize that we're not alone. There's a reason why when he said to pray, he said, our Father. Pray this, our Father. He didn't say, my Father. He said, Our Father. Immediately when we pray that prayer, we're aware that we're part of a larger whole. That there's other believers out there. That we're part of the body of Christ. And we need to pray for them and and be there for them. Because when one of them suffers, one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. We're told that in Scripture. And so he says, you're not any different than anybody else. Other people are suffering. Other people are going through things as well. You need to be prayerful and recognize that uh, you know, you're, you're a part of the body like they are, and you need to lift them up, and they need to lift you up. Now he gets to a benediction there, or closing prayer in verses 10 and 11. He says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's not by accident he says this word again, and he's going to say it again in verse 12, the word grace. He says, but may the God of all grace, when they're suffering, they're going through difficulty, they're, they're sensing that they're so needy. It's no wonder that the Holy Spirit led Peter to say, the God of all grace bless you in all these ways. We need to understand God's grace. I recommend everybody read Why Grace Changes Everything from our equipping library by Pastor Chuck. And, I, and even if you've read it before, it's a great thing to come back to over and over again because it gives us that foundation upon which our, our growth occurs. And, and so he says, you need to understand that God is a God of all grace, not some grace, not grace for some believers, but not you. You're different. Again, that's the lie, that we're different. He says all grace. He gives grace for everything that we need of. Who called us, remember, we're called, it's interesting that he says, called us to his eternal glory after you have suffered a while. I wish he wouldn't have put that in there. <laughs> after you have suffered a while. And you notice he says a while. It doesn't say the rest of your life. You know, in light of eternity, 
We may suffer the rest of our lives, but in light of eternity, it's, it's, it's just a while. And it's not the end. Again, he tries to get their attention on the big picture. That this is not where you're going, what you're going to experience for all eternity. God has an end to your, uh, to, to your uh, you know, in, when you're, what you're enduring right now. And you're going to be an overcomer. How many times do we see in Scripture the, the virtue and the blessing of being an overcomer? That's what he's called us to be. We're more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. That's who we really are. And he's given us everything that we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus to be able to be uh, victorious. And so that's what he's praying for him. Because he's just ending with this prayer that God will perfect. That means to, to be complete, to establish, strengthen, and settle you. All these are in the future tense there. These are all things that are going to happen uh, in our future. It happens now, but of course, it's going to happen even more in our future as we allow God to humble ourselves, allow him to humble us through all that he brings us through as we take up our cross daily and follow him, wherever that leads. It may not lead to what we want, where we want it to go. I mean, again, the disciples didn't work out a, a contract with, with the Lord Jesus when he said, come follow me. They didn't know how, for how long, they didn't know where, they didn't, they didn't know anything, any of those things. But they sensed by the Spirit it was the right decision to follow this Messiah, and they did. And so did we, those of us that know him. And he may lead us one direction, he may lead us another direction, but he knows what he's doing. But eventually we will be perfected, we will be completed, we will be completely established and strengthened and totally settled. Because when you're going through difficulty, the last thing you feel is settled. You can go through so many things and just feel, I just want peace. Now, he says in verse 12, by Salvanus, that is most likely Silas, uh, there, another word for Silas, our faithful brother, as I consider him. This is probably written by Silas, and then it's very probable that Peter is writing now verses uh, you know, twelve, at least twelve and thirteen, maybe fourteen, in his own handwriting, he's saying Silas has been dicta- or, uh, been the secretary or writing this down, uh, and he our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace. There's our word again. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. Wow. How do you stand? How do you stand firm? By God's grace. By being relying, by relying on his power and his grace to get you through whatever you're going through. And it's sufficient. That's the message. His grace is sufficient to endure anything that we have to endure. And then he gets to some greetings in verse 13 and 14. He says, verse 13, she who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you and so does Mark my son. Now likely this is the church there. A lot of times the word church is in the feminine, described in the, as, as the feminine. It's most likely a church that is greeting there. And then people, you know, they want to argue about what, what he's talking about related to Babylon, whether he was in literal Babylon there. Most people believe he was in Rome and it was considered, you know, an ungodly place and he referred to it as Babylon. Possibly that because, you know, this letter could have got uh, people in trouble by mentioning Rome and so forth. And so, you know, we don't know. But the point is he's saying this church greets you who are elect together with you. He reminds them that they're elected. They're chosen. When you're being persecuted and everyone says you're worthless, it's very comforting for someone to tell you that God has chosen you. And so he reminds them that, that not only are you elect, but they're elect together with you. So you're all one body and they greet you. 
And so does Mark, my son. I don't want to pass over greeting there. We can just pass over it. He's going to say it in verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Why would he tell believers to greet one another? Why would he do that? Because we pick and choose sometimes who we're going to care for. It's not just a greeting of how you doing, a sideways hug or a handshake or in some cultures a kiss. I mean, in, in, uh, my brother-in-law was a missionary in Hungary for a while and they would, every believer come up, you know, and, you'd, and when, during the greeting time or when they'd see each other on the street, all you'd hear is, can you imagine being in a group here when we greet and that all you're hearing is, that would that'd be pretty, maybe some of you would be afraid of that. I, don't, I wouldn't ever want that. But, uh, you know, it's it, just an expression of love there. But he says to greet one another. One of the signs of a healthy church is how the believers greet one another. You know, and I, I've said this before, but I, I've purposely asked the, those that do announcements to step away from the pulpit, to take their time, not give any visual cues that we're in a hurry. We're not in a hurry. You know, it's not a ritual. We want to really greet. You know, a lot of times we forget that one of the most potent times of ministry is before and after the service. And even during those times of where we get a chance to greet one another. But it goes beyond that. It means to pay attention to other people. Don't just pass by them. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're, they're your brothers and sisters. Greet them. Tell them, that, tell them that you love them. Give them a hug and so forth. It, it, I think it's important. He says, Mark greets you as well. Mark uh, we know that from the Gospels. Many people believe that Peter was the main source of his, his Gospel there. And Silas is writing this down. What's interesting is that Peter's mentioned things that, that kind of have to do with his failures in the past. We've talked about it with you know, seeing the, talking about the glory of Christ you know, when he was at the Mount of Transfiguration and he failed there. He talks about seeing, being a witness of the sufferings of Christ when he didn't actually physically see very likely all the sufferings of Christ. And here we have Mark being mentioned. And Mark's on, on the first missionary journey, he's the one that bailed, took off back home. And there was a dispute between him, between Paul and Barnabas because of him. Later on, Paul would say in his last letter that, you know, you know to greet Mark and to bring Mark because he's very useful for me in ministry. The guy who took over from Mark when Mark failed was, was, was uh, Silas. <laughs> And Silas is the one that's recording this letter. So it all comes around full circle. Even our weaknesses, even our failures, God redeems those things and uses us. And, and, and you see him saying, we're all working together, one body here, even those that have failed in, in the past. And then he ends in the middle of verse 14. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. That's what they needed. They needed peace. Jesus gives us peace where we can't have peace otherwise. We need to cast our cares upon him. We need to be anxious for nothing. And as we, as we lift those things up to him, then the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. They needed that. We need that. Maybe you're going through something really difficult right now and you need God's peace. You need to just cast your care upon him. Just like it says, be anxious for nothing. Give those things over to him. His peace will come and guard your heart and your mind. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you, Lord, for how amazing it's been going through it verse by verse. I just pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and help us. Help us right now, Lord, those of us that are struggling to keep our focus on you because of things that we're going through, Lord. Help us to cast our care upon you and, and see that you, your grace is sufficient for every need that we have. We commit it to you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, we're going to sing a song right now and just focus on the Lord and focus on the things that maybe we need to give over to him. Maybe you're overwhelmed right now with burdens and you need to cast those things upon him. We're going to sing one song and and give you an opportunity and give me an opportunity to be able to do that and, and just give those things over to him and surrender those things. Maybe you've been holding back, surrendering some things to him. Surrender him. Give them over to him. Cast your care upon him. He cares for you. He wants to alleviate that burden. So let's do that now.